92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features journalists and Axios founders Jim Vandehey and Mike Allen in a discussion on the Smarter, Faster Revolution, their campaign to make the world smarter on the most important issues of the day. It was recorded on May 2nd, 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank, thank you very so much. much. Uh, thank you so much. What a treat. And we so appreciate your coming out. For as long as I've been in the Northeast, I've been hearing about the 92nd Street Y. And so actually being here uh, for the first time is a great uh, honor for both of us. And uh, so we're most appreciative for that. What's, Jim, what's the Oshkosh equivalent of the 92nd Street Y? be uh, the tavern on the corner where I grew up, probably. <laughs> uh, I think you still owe a tab uh, there. But uh, appreciate all your coming out. Uh, Barbara Fedita, who's been a longtime uh, friend, grateful to her for being here. So on the way over, Jim's Twitter was blowing up. And uh, uh, maybe it was because of a great like management or leadership or entrepreneurial insight. Maybe he had a scoop about... Uh, Facebook or about Trump. Uh, Jim, just what was your tweet that blew up your phone? You should actually show him. I was looking at his phone. He has 157,000 unread email messages. <laughs> so, so the point of that is to make you feel I took good. took a picture of it. Uh, make you feel good about yourself. Like whatever uh, you didn't make your bed, whatever you didn't do today, like you're better off uh, than that. So... Uh, thank you so much uh, for being here, and uh, today we're going to uh, talk about uh, what's going on uh, with media. Like any question you have about media, politics, business, tech, like we'd love to hit it, and we'd love to hear your own life experience. So Axios started 10 years to the day after we started Politico. So back in January 07, right when Hillary and Obama were starting their Thing. Uh, Jim Van High, I, John Harris, all of whom worked together at the Washington Post, we started Politico. And 10 years to the day later, two years before Trump's inauguration, we started Axios. So I'll let all of you decide who's had the better year. Uh, the, uh, but it's been, it's, it was fascinating, and I think even starting Axios explains a lot about the moment that we live in. Because when you went back a decade ago, the, the, the problem that we were trying to solve was that we didn't think there was enough political coverage, we didn't think it was deep enough, we didn't think it had enough voice. Ten years later, there's like too much uh, political coverage in some ways, and the world got exponentially more complicated. And it wasn't enough, even for someone like me who was in the media and who grew up only caring about politics, to just be really smart about politics. If you want to own the next five years, especially for uh, the young people uh, in the audience, you have to get a lot smarter, a lot quicker on what's happening with 5G, what's happening with robotics, what's happening with artificial intelligence, what's happening with China 2025, what's happening in business, how are people consuming and disseminating information. The burden on us as people who care about news and care about information and care about facts and we're decidedly pro-facts, the the, the burden on us is that we have to understand the complexities of these issues. And the reason we started Axios is that the, all the action is going to be in the collision of those topics. If you think about every job, every industry, every country, every community, it's going to be reordered by the collision of technology, by the, with uh, regulation, with 
politics, with how people are consuming and disseminating information. So we built the company to help solve that problem, and we do it through two big ways. One, trying to make the information consumption a lot more efficient, which is the architecture of our entire site, which is what's actually happening and why does it matter, which are the two big questions we all ask about any piece of content. And to do that, we hire people who have subject matter expertise, who are just a lot smarter than us, people who have backgrounds in science, people who have backgrounds in tech deals, people who have backgrounds in issues like uh, robotics and obviously policy and, and how it collides with those. And so, you know, we're a little more than a year old, uh, and it definitely validated all of the assumptions that we made about what people need, because we've seen a big audience surge, we've seen huge engagement, uh, we've seen uh, sort of leaders at the, at the highest levels, uh, down to people who are just casual consumers of news, really get hooked to it and, 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 and almost hunger for it. Because the old model, there's so much poison now in, in, so, in some of the old model where people don't know what to trust. And so the fact that we don't have an editorial page, that we're not really trying to put our thumb on the scale other than trying to help you get uh, smarter on complex issues. And, to me, that's the whole game. I think, I, I think it, this is bigger than journalism. It's obviously bigger than our company. If we don't, as, as people, if we don't figure out how to take advantage of these technologies and take advantage of these platforms and take advantage of this moment and do it in the next five to 10 years, I do worry someone else is gonna come along and eat our lunch. Probably the Chinese, maybe uh, India, but somebody will. Somebody is gonna see the mass potential that's exploding before us and our hope is to help us help uh, people here get a lot uh, smarter, quicker on those topics, so so we can do it here at home. So axios means worthy in Greek. The idea is to always be worthy of your time and attention. After we picked the name for axios, we realized that there was an axios wine uh, out of Oregon. Luckily, it turned out to be a very classy wine. I don't know if, what we would have done if it came in a box, uh, but uh, but luckily, uh, it's a worthy wine. And we're very fortunate that one of our most worthy colleagues is with us tonight, Evan Ryan, who's part of our founding leadership team, our executive vice president uh, in the last administration, was the literal Madam Secretary, uh, Assistant uh, Secretary of State for President Obama, and has brought so much understanding of how the world works and how to run teams. And so we're very uh, uh, fortunate and grateful uh, that Evan is with us. So Jim was talking about uh, China and 5G and like one of the big animating ideas of how I do my job. So in the morning, I have a newsletter, Axios AM, Mike's Top 10. And thank you, I got to visit with some of you earlier and you said you uh, read it, which I'm always uh, grateful for. And uh, the best way that we know that somebody's really reading Axios AM is when they complain. Uh, so, so always grateful for your complaints because then I know uh, you're reading. But when I think through the 10 things and we're in this crazy, what we used to call the news cycle, like now we call the news cyclone, um, like as we, we put our head in the news cyclone every day and what are the 10 things that are worthy of your attention? What are the 10 things that a smart, curious, professional like yourselves would want to know? Like one of the things I think about a lot is What's going to live beyond the news cycle? Like, what will we care about this weekend? What will we care about in June? What will we care about in 2019? And like, that's super clarifying because there's so much churn, so much crap today. And uh, last month, uh, I was in Austin for South by Southwest. And 
uh, getting in touch with my inner gamer. Uh, like it's a part of the culture that I'm, where I'm totally blind and uh, South By was a great place to catch up on that. But the biggest idea that I was reminded of there, that I took away from there and why I was so glad that I went was as you talk to people in California who are thinking about, as Jim said, China, AI, uh, 5G, like they're thinking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, far beyond the three years or seven years that we'll have a President Trump. And so like in our world, it's so easy to get in, sucked into the Trump churn, but so important for us and such a gift to our audience, an opportunity for us to serve our audience, uh, to pay attention to the longer game. Now, uh, taking the, the title of the, uh, the 92nd Street Y uh, event here, like something that I've heard Jim say is that the biggest problem with fake news is that people don't believe real news. I mean, I think that's gonna be the, if you think about all of the things that can cause angst about the Trump presidency, I think that's at the very top of the list. It's the one thing that I think is going to uh, undoubtedly outlast him. We can debate how, how consequential the presidency's been to date, but the thing that's been certainly most consequential is that you have 50, 60% of the population that doesn't believe a damn thing that our industry writes, that they no longer believe that anything that might be a fact is an actual fact. That's not all on Trump. I think a lot of it was a pre-existing condition. I think there's things that the media could have done better uh, along the way, and I certainly we've uh, we've tried to point those out uh, along the way. But there's no doubt his constant hammering that this isn't real, that's fake news, that uh, don't trust uh, media. It's working. I mean, there was a poll out this week that went another poll that showed 50, 55 percent of people think that the media is the enemy of the state. And it's not we don't need to be loved. And I don't even really give a shit if, if people like us or don't like us. I do worry a lot that if you don't even have a common set of facts from which people are trying to make decisions on, how could you ever make a decision or how could you ever uh, have a compromise or, or, or sort of come to some common understanding on really complex issues like so much of the Trump coverage? It, it is a show, right? It is a game. It is, he said, what today? Oh my God, I'm gonna set my hair on fire. But what we're losing in that is that like, there's some big stuff going on. You have a government that was built to govern uh, a generation ago, not built to govern in a technological era where things change every two to five years. It's not, it's not equipped to deal with drones and space travel and 5G and automation and robotics. And so, so much of that gets lost and there's not really an ability because people have lost faith in, in us and faith in facts, that's gonna outlast him. And I go back and forth. There's some, I always tell people like, for all, I mean, you see it, so many people have the derangement syndrome. You can't even hear Trump without shaking. Uh, and, and I totally get it, but if you actually just turned off the damn TV, didn't watch Fox and Friends, stayed off of Twitter, went to bed on election day and woke up today, Put a rhetoric aside, like, he ain't really done that much yet. He might, but he really hasn't. I would actually argue that last year, if you didn't know it was President Trump, it could have been President Pence or Ryan. If you look at the tax bill, if you look at Gorsuch, if you look at what they went after with regulations, very conventional. He talks like a madman, but then governs kind of like every other Republican would govern. That might change. I think the danger, the, the pushback I'd probably get for people in the audience is that could change. We end up in nuclear war. That would be different, uh, and that would be unfortunate. <laughs> fortunate if we end up in authentic uh, trade war. But even there, like there's such a disconnect between the radical rhetoric and what he does. I'm going to go, I'm going to have a trade war, I'm going to slap tariffs. And the next thing you know, like he might not. 
I'm going to go to war with Korea. Now he might like, cut a deal uh, uh, with the guy he was calling the fat kid uh, not long ago. So the, there, there still is that, that, that distance, but it is the rhetoric. It is that erosion of trust that worries me the most. Yeah, and when you uh, look ahead to that summit of the century that's coming up, the president's uh, instinctive, impulsive decision to accept that invitation from Kim Jong-un, I think Evan would tell us there's no other president, Republican or Democrat, who on the spot would have accepted that invitation. But uh, reporting by our colleague Jonathan Swan, who is uh, the best of the White House uh, reporters, as he outlined uh, this weekend in his newsletter, Sneak Peek, that comes out uh, Sunday afternoon, he looked at how Trump approaches these decisions to the degree that you can call them decisions. They're more reflexes than they are decisions. And when Trump came in, he and Jared Kushner decided that his great man moment, like his chance for the history books, would be Middle East peace. And uh, after like a few tweets and a moving of the embassy to Jerusalem and a few things like that, uh, that doesn't seem to be working very well for him. And they recognize that there's not much opportunity there. So Trump, who like thinks he's been a great man for a while, like he might be the first person who ever thinks that he had a better plane and a better house before he got the job. Uh, like he still wants to be in the history books, and now he thinks that a deal with North Korea is the way to do that. And like you might imagine, like that's very frightening to the experts, the adults around him, the people who've spent a lifetime in adulthood specializing in these areas. But but it's it's how he looks at things differently. Like like any other administration would say, well, like we need to work the interagency process. Like we need to like prepare, lay the groundwork for uh, this summit. We need to pre-cook our deliverables. We need to figure out what we're going to say before we go in. Whereas Trump says, put me in the room with the guy and I'll outsmart him. I'll figure him out. And the funny thing is, like he's kind of done that with the French president, Emmanuel Macron. Like, like could not be differenter people. Uh, just start with Macron and start with Trump. Uh, but they couldn't have more different views, more different sensibilities. But after Macron's uh, visit uh, last week, the week before, uh, we sat down with him. He did a small roundtable with about a dozen reporters. And uh, the French president was so blunt, so open about what had just happened, about how he viewed Trump, that I asked again. They told us it was on the record. I could not believe it was on the record. I've never had a world leader talk with this sort of clarity. Like usually, like it's a lot of fog after a meeting like that. But what he said was he had a, a grudging respect for Trump. He's learning, he's learning to, uh, to adapt to Trump's world, to Trump's reality in a way that Republicans have, in a way that, that Capitol Hill has. And the way that he spun it, what he said was, we each are mavericks in our own system. And so he was able to put a little halo on us. At the same time, he was really adapting to Trump's reality. Jim, something you talk a lot about is we try and figure out what, what's happening, trying to understand this administration, trying to have a new pair of glasses to figure out what's going on. Because 
Like Jim and I over the year have had a debate about how much is method and how much is madness. I thought there was more method to the madness. I think madness is winning. Uh, but to the degree that there is any method, you talk a lot about the known knowns. Well, the thing, and I really do want to do Q&A because I think it's just small enough where we should just be answering what's on your mind. But the thing, when we cover Trump, the thing we try to do is just to be clinical about it and sort of like, what do we know? We have amazing access into the White House. I think there's like us, the Post, the Times, the three publications really have amazing access into the White House. We will learn, this is not an exaggeration. So before we started Politico, I covered the presidency for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. So I covered Bush twice. I will, we will learn more this week in real time about what Trump is actually doing and saying that shouldn't be known than we would have learned in a year covering George Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton. Even after Every, the memoirs come out, it's incredible. Everybody leaks, everybody talks, he leaks. Every, it's just this whole idea, I hate the press. There's never been a more media-obsessed president in the history of, uh, of our fine nation. So you get, you get this lens in. So like where I always feel we can be helpful with him is we can be clinical about it in terms of what's real and what's not real. And I would say that what's not real is this sort of, uh, there's definitely this sort of a liberal fantasy that he is like now headed towards senality, that he's like bouncing around and hitting the walls. Like he's the same damn person he was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That part is not accurate. The other part in some ways might even be understated. Uh, like he, his staff, is so fearful of his behavior, so worried about sort of the erratic nature of his decision-making. Uh, don't see him for long periods of time. That idea of like executive time in the, in the mornings, four or five hours where he's just watching Fox and Friends, communicating with Fox and Friends, getting revved up, getting on Twitter, sort of living out any impulse, <laughs> any feeling, any emotion that he has. All of it real. That is not like, oh my God, the liberal media is just picking on him. A hundred percent real. And the fact that what what is to me like the number like in terms of like I always look at life through sort of both like as a business and now through looking at government like the threat matrix like what are the biggest threats to the country? The biggest short-term threat right now is you just have a White House that is grossly understaffed. You have, a, you have a government that is grossly understaffed at the agency level and at the White House level with zero capacity to recruit top tier talent. In almost every case, any person that you would wish, hope you might hate their politics, but they should be serving in this government, will never serve in this government. Because if you're really good at your game, if you're like the best of the best, you're not gonna go into a place where you're not gonna be listened to or respected, you're gonna be second guessed, you might get fired, you might get kneecapped by the kids. Like it just, no sane person would put themselves into it. And we've been blessed. We really have been blessed for all of the angst and hangdog nature of our public. Like, this is a period of amazing prosperity. We, yes, we can talk about the pockets that don't have it, but it's amazing prosperity and amazing peace. We haven't had a crisis. Every White House is ultimately defined by something that was totally unexpected. It will happen. Something will hit. Whether it's Korea, whether it's China, whether it's a cyber attack, something will happen. And that's, uh, that's where I get most worried. It's not the policy, because nothing's gonna happen this year. Uh, probably nothing happens next year, or the year after. I think the, the governing period, the policy period, is probably largely done unless there's an unexpected uh, outcome in November. 
but something will happen, and the, the inability to be able to respond to it is what I, what I do think people should be legitimately at least aware of, if not uh, concerned of. Uh, one, you want to do one more point, and then we can just jump in, or should we jump into Q and do want to like you should. I mean, like we obviously spend a lot of time in the media. We've built companies. We we think about the politics stuff. We think about tech a lot. I don't really want to hear like what's on your mind. If there's yeah, stuff you want sure. to talk about, like anything you were wanted to ask, or if there's something we've said we are impossible to offend, so push back and. Yeah, the question was the effect on the midterm elections. I think the midterm elections are 100% a referendum on him. Uh, I think this is this will be a verdict on Donald Trump, both in the House and the Senate, and it will define the final two years of his presidency. Listen, for the, I don't know if there's any Republicans in the room. If you're a conservative, the thing that should piss you off the most is that they haven't done that much. It, Washington is almost ungovernable at this period unless you have all party rule, meaning you have, the, you have the House, the Senate, and the White House. They have it. They really haven't done that much. Tax cuts, sure, some of the regulatory stuff, sure. Haven't done that much. If you get that kind of power, you really should hook yourself up to a vat of Red Bull and <laughs> never go to bed. You should, you should re-engineer the country in your image because you're not gonna get another crack at it potentially for five, 10, uh, 20, uh, years and so th this is going to end up being a referendum on him so then you say well th the common assumption now seems to be well Democrats will win back the house and the Senate's a toss-up that's probably true I will say th these things are unknowable this far out that is the history of, of, of elections a couple things are knowable we live in a period of insane volatility every election for the last six or seven has given us some kind of change so like the, the, the system's kind of cooked for change. So even if he was liked, there, were, there, there was there's just this desire, this, uh, this uh, sort of uh, gravitational pull uh, towards change. Then you look at the known known indicators. What you look for when you're looking for a wave is do you have a bunch of, one year off your election doesn't mean anything, two actually doesn't mean anything. When you have 12, 15, 17 off your elections where you have the exact same pattern play out in distinctly different regions of the country. And, the, and this has happened. You've had Democratic turnout outperform previous elections in every single off-year race to date. You've seen a surge largely powered by women. Women are better voters than men uh, and turn out in higher numbers. And you've now seen it carry out. So the Me Too movement, all the, the, the backlash to Trump, you're now seeing an empirical manifestation of it in these races. That's real. Why does that matter? Because momentum begets money. So you're seeing Democrats raise more money vis-a-vis -vis Republicans than they typically would in this sort of election environment. Then you look at indicators like people don't f surrender power. Paul Ryan doesn't leave if he thinks he's gonna definitely right. be speaker with a big majority. Right. You know, eight or nine, whatever it is now, committee chairmen, some of them term limit, but they don't leave when you've got that seniority and you have power that you're confident in. You don't have a record number of retirements if you feel really secure in your district. That doesn't mean that, that Democrats definitely win back the House, but all of those indicators suggest what we actually see among Republicans are panic. They think they're gonna lose the House. That would be what most Republicans would tell you. The Senate, I would have thought, was almost unwinnable for Democrats just because they have 10 Democratic senators up for re-elections in state that Trump won, five that Trump won in double digits. But it suddenly looks like it is winnable. Not likely, but plausible, largely because Trump is unpopular. They're recruiting pretty good uh, candidates. And you're seeing, like even in Texas, like how the hell can Ted Cruz get outraised uh, in Texas? Like that's like 
political malpractice. It should never happen. Uh, but it is happening. So again, that speaks to those indicators. And Jim was talking, uh, uh, this will take five seconds. Jim was talking about the what should piss you off if you're a conservative. Like sort of the other end of that telescope is a huge blind spot for this administration in addition to that pipeline that he was talking about, the, the, the talent dearth, is you talk to people who were in the Bush administration when Democrats got the gavel, when Speaker Pelosi took over. This administration has no sense of what's about to hit it. That when Democrats control the House, they have subpoena power, they can get in your budgets, they can get in your emails, they can tie you up with constant testimony, and it's something that even Republican leaders have tried in a kind of subtle way to communicate uh, to this West Wing, but they're not getting the message. They're very much in their own reality, and uh, Democrats having part of the Capitol is going to really change their reality. The, I wanted to just add to that. The, if, if Democrats don't win back the House, the reason is, like the, I'll offend some people in here, the Democratic Party is not a very good political party right now. It hasn't been. It's the irony of the Obama years. President Obama was fantastic for President Obama. By empirical standards, he was actually a debacle for the Democratic Party. If you look at the number of House seats, Senate seats, gubernatorial seats, uh, state legislative seats, wiped out across the board. DNC is a shell of its former self. That's on him. Like, as your part of your job is to run uh, both the country, but also to run uh, your party. And so you have a Democratic Party, uh, and you see it even in the uh, you see it in the leadership. My parents are when 75, 76. I love them. I don't know if necessarily like they should be leading a political party, and they would be younger than the leaders of the House Democratic Caucus. They would be uh, about the same age as the people, the Democrats who are leading in the polls among Democratic contenders, your Bidens, your Warrens. So it's not, this isn't a super healthy party with an obvious next generation super ready to take over uh, for it. And I think that will, that definitely will hinder them a little bit because there's an identity crisis of should we be super progressive or should we try to figure out if we can get a centrist Democrat who can win uh, in, a, in, a, in a swing district. And some of that, you know, definitely a lot of districts where they're getting good candidates or some where it's impossible. Sorry. I'd like you to talk about what your tar who your target audience is and how you can get viewers of Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow to get out of their comfort zone and read something that they will believe. Yeah, I mean, our target audience is we're very specific in that we're, we are going after people who who seek out, need, and want serious news on a daily basis. The people in this room. So people, but, but it's not, and again, like I'm, it's kind of a downer. It might be 20 million, it might be, I don't know what that population is. It's not 50% of the country. Most people are not seeking out serious news. I've looked at the data from Politico, from us, from other companies when we were uh, in between. I know what people are reading. All this, like, I wish there was more coverage of healthcare. Yeah, no you don't, uh, because you're actually not reading it. Because I went back and looked at all the data and you're not. Uh, we'll keep producing it, but very few people are reading it. So our target audience is people who care about serious news on a daily basis. There's some people who are bubble people who you cannot get to. That, should, that was true 100 years ago, it's true today. There's just some people who are extremely partisan, who are extremely stubborn, and they just want someone to make them feel good about their own views. Those people are ungettable. There are people who are persuadable, and I think our job is, whether we're in here talking or whether we're on TV talking or whether we're writing, 
is to show people we're just trying to get to the closest approximation of the truth and inform you on these topics and earn your trust. I do think as a media company, I do think as an industry, we have, the, we have an obligation to earn your trust and to keep your trust and do that by, I don't know, maybe shutting the hell up on Twitter, maybe when you're on TV not popping off like you love Hillary, uh, maybe making sure that in your coverage you are uh, trying to be as dispassionate as possible. That's all you can do because if we lose this war, and it is a war now. If we lose this war to get people to understand the importance of facts, to understand the importance of journalism, uh, the, the, the country suffers. I, I truly believe that. And so I do think there's a huge obligation to the calling dimension of what we do to, to do everything we can. And that's really all you can do. Because a lot of this is on us. It's not dis as much as people, people want, Trump is not, uh, Trump is not the cause. Trump is the effect. There's a lot of stuff that happened over the last 10 years that brought us Donald Trump. He is not, he is not an anomaly. In some ways, he was somewhat predictable. Maybe not him, but someone like him, if you look at a lot of forces that were, that were sent in motion, including cable TV, including mistakes that our industry made, including social media, that what does social media do? What does it do? What do you think you get when you go to Facebook? All it's looking at is what you're looking at. It's just an emotional machine that's feeding you more. If you hate Trump, you're going to get more Trump hatred. If you hate Hillary, you're going to get more Hillary hatred. Stick your head in that machine. I guarantee you, you're going to come out a hell of a lot more polarized than you went in. Those things begot Trump. He didn't cause those things. Uh, yeah. So I was just about to ask a question, uh, whether you uh, concede that the erosion of trust actually preceded Trump. So I gather you, you do, you get that. So the question is, um, given that, has the media been sufficiently reflective, do you think, self-reflective? Has it sufficiently assessed its own performance and wondered whether, to what extent it has contributed to um, the erosion and the polarization? And just to further put a modest point on that, I had to laugh as I watched folks going in on the red carpet on whatever night that was, the White House dinner, and they saw themselves as, as celebrities. They didn't see themselves as guys and girls out in the street looking for the right story. Now, uh, sir, I think that's what we call leading the witness. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, yes, the media has been very reflective, and we really learned a lot from November 2016. No, like, like as usual, the media lives in its own bubble, its own reality, and that has created tremendous opportunity for Axios. Like the Axios opportunity turned out to be a lot bigger than we thought. So two years ago, it was three of us, now it's 120 of us, and November 2016 was a big part of that because after that, people didn't know what to trust, and the media's done a terrible job of learning the lesson of that. Like what went wrong in November 2016 for the media? We had one job and our one job was to explain America to you, to understand America and explain it to you. And like we completely failed about that. And now so much of the press thinks the solution to that is to take a kid from Brooklyn, put him on a plane, have him go to a VFW hall in St. Louis for a night and write a story about what's going on in Trump country. And that just isn't the answer. And like the answer is uh, understanding the big demographic trends that are happening, listening to those people, including them in your coverage. A great thing about uh, Axios AM, when you hit reply, 
That's my email. It's Mike at Axios.com. It's the only email I got. That's why I have 157,000 uh, uh, emails. But I, anyone, those are. will answer. <laughs> well, yes. Well, well those are, uh, those are uh, spam. Uh, I answer everything. Uh, everything's personal. I answer. But uh, something, Jim, a very interesting point that you make is that when we think about what was learned, what should have been learned, like one thing you point out is that Trump voters weren't wrong about a lot of the things that drove them. They weren't wrong. I mean, listen, I mean, if the, if the fundamental critique was, and it is, that you've got a whole massive part of the population, it's like, screw you. Like, I'm supposed to, the media, uh, we don't trust you. you. The government, you got us into two wars where my neighbor's the one who's fighting it that seemed like we should have never been there uh, in the first place. And now, like, I'm a... Uh, I'm sort of an outcast if I'm patriotic about it. All of these social changes that you're saying are the way I have to behave or not the way that I necessarily uh, grew up. You've got, a, you've got, there was almost like a sneering. The part of the, 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 where the press gets itself in the most uh, trouble is when there's just like this condescension and this sneering uh, coverage of a whole segment of our country, you know, 40, 50% of people. You might not agree with them, but they don't like the changes. They don't want more diversity. They don't want fast social changes. They kind of liked the world that they grew up in. Think about gay marriage, whatever your position is on it. Like imagine that you're sitting there and you're in Ohio and you have, you have reservations about gay marriage. And you, you sit here and now everyone says, oh my God, your position, you're a bigot. Like I can't believe you're, you're thinking this way. And, and, and that person's thinking like, wait a second, wasn't that Hillary Clinton's position in concern only a couple years ago? Wasn't that Barack Obama's and now suddenly three years later, like I'm a bigot? And I think those people, that resentment, I am still convinced, will never actually know whether Facebook tipped the elections or the Russians uh, tipped the elections. I am convinced, I've heard from more than enough people who hated Trump and voted for him as a middle finger to all of us, to big media, to big money, to big companies. They had just had it, and she was the perfect vessel because they hated her to begin with. Uh, I'll tell a quick story, and then uh, uh, my family. So my family lives in Wisconsin, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. My father is probably, he would have been an Edwards person, a Biden person maybe, uh, liked, uh, probably would have written in Kasich, wanted, wanted Kasich, uh, but hated Hillary. Uh, and follows this stuff uh, very, very closely. Uh, and he, uh, the whole time, uh, hates Trump, hates Trump, so I just assume he wrote in Kasich. Calls the day after the election. And uh, he goes, well, I gotta tell you something. Okay, Dan, I know where this one's going. He said, I went in to vote, and he goes, I had prayed harder about my vote than I had prayed about anything other than my wife and uh, three children. And I went in there and I thought I'd be a coward if I, would, if I just wrote in somebody. He goes, so I voted for Trump. He goes, I voted for Trump because I believe that the, the system can handle uh, crazy better than it can handle corrupt. Uh, and I'm convinced tons of people did the same thing. They were sitting in line, they heard somebody sneering, and they said, you know what, screw you, I'm going Trump. Uh, and that, that's there, the, fun, the thing, you wanna take a bet with anyone? This, all the, of all the coverage, all the hyperventilating, over the last 60, 70 days. Trump's numbers never go up more than a percent or go down a percent. He has been at, at 40% give or take since June of 2016. He's never going higher and he's never going lower. And you know how you know that? Because he's tested it. He's offended every single group of people in America except for straight white Christian men and nothing happens. Everyone's like, oh my God, he's done. Like, nope, he's gonna be at 41% tomorrow. <laughs> I think 
I also think there's something uh, at fault here in our educational system. I have a daughter that lives in Iowa, and I go out there, there's not a newspaper. I think half the more than half the country don't get a newspaper, don't follow the news, just kind of have their comfort zone as you're talking about, and that's who they vote for. They don't, they don't involve themselves with what's going on. Oh, they should. <laughs> There's no doubt. And most people, I mean, and again, I think that's always been true. I think there's a lot of people who vote and don't pay attention to stuff. But I do think there's just a lot of people, this election, and I think this next election will be a very emotional election. I, I really think it was. I think you, if you go back and look, any time that the word email and Hillary were listed, there was a huge spike in, in her unfavorable ratings. And that's why I think Comey might have cost her the election, because I don't think anyone understood the email scandal. I think very few people did. All they know is every time they heard email and Hillary, they're like, oh, those scummy damn Clintons again. <laughs> you know what? And I had it. And I, do, and I do think like that had such an atmospheric effect on top of all the other things that we just talked about. So um, my question is, well, you made the point that um, the French president was being adaptive to Trump. So on a whole, should we be scared of this? And that's been my thought the whole time. I may not look it, but I remember when on bra commercials, we didn't see bras. Then all of a sudden, now we see everything. Then I remember on TV, there was no curses. Now we hear a whole bunch of curses. Are we allowing ourselves to just be taken in by everything that we see? And are we, because the whole thing, media is the enemy. Our um, US intelligence agencies can't be trusted. So everything that we've kind of had on a, on, on a pedestal, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have, or maybe we have, but everything that we thought was sound and great about our government is now being, I feel, demolished by this Trump. So now what your answer, even in the, the Democratic Party, and what is our answer now? Who, who, what, what other crazies are we going to have coming in? Because now we've allowed ourselves to be polluted by all this crazy here. And is that scary? Is it, should we be afraid? Like, what do we do? The crazy, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, the... Real responsibility and opportunity for people who are privileged to be covering this time, which people will write books about for hundreds of years, is to just freeze frame and recognize like the tectonic changes that are going on. And uh, Jim was right about the political currents in the country. Same was true of media, that the, 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 the changes in media that were speeding up the spin cycle, that we're making uh, everything available in real time, a constant uh, pressure on people to think, uh, to speak before they think. All those things were happening before Trump, but they have all been magnified and exacerbated. So if you want to be a place that people trust, if you want to live up to the responsibilities we have, one of the biggest things we can do is just, just, just pause. And like one thing I try to do uh, in my newsletters, just once in a while and just shake people and say, this is important. Pay attention to this. Jim and I on the train wrote something today uh, along those lines. We were just talking about how if you look at what happened with the Mueller questions and the fact that uh, he now is threatening to subpoena the president, the mu musical chairs with the lawyers, like that is a massive risk for the executive branch of our government and uh, very hard to, to, to 
calculate as it all comes comes at us uh, how much it matters. So that's one thing we do, try to do is connected, and Jim will take the second half. Well, the only thing I would add to that is it, I don't know. I don't think any of us know, which is we've basically been stuck like as a society with Novocaine. Like we're, we're suddenly, we're collectively numb to like what would be insane news. Look at this week. There's two stories that are, don't even really crack the top five stories. You have the president of the United States' doctor going public saying that, that he basically faked his health report and got the president to say he's the healthiest person in the history of mankind. Like, obviously, we knew that was Trump, but the fact that, like, it comes out and it's like, yeah, whatever. Or NBC reports that, uh, that, that General Kelly uh, has r routinely referred to his boss as an idiot. Like, and people are like, well, no shit he did, right? Like, it's the chief of staff, like, working for the president. This is the second most powerful person in the United States government, usually. And, and we're just sort of yawning that he's calling his boss, who has his finger on the button, a freaking idiot. Like, that is just, like, we're numb to it. And I don't, so there, there's the numbness, and I don't know what that does to us. And then there's the bar has been lowered. Like, like, it's so, like, what could you possibly do when you run in the future that would be disqualifying or would be, well, it's not, he's not even half as bad as Trump. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> like, we're shooting for higher in terms of, like, just behavior and how we talk about people, how we communicate, whether you could be honest. So, like, I don't know what effect that that, that has. It's, it, it, in some ways, it's very scary. It shows, I would say, the fragility of our democracy, the fragility of our power. Like, the fact that, like, that could happen that quickly with this kind of consequence just shows like we're not as as is is sort of indefeatable as we think that, that, that we are. And I, I don't know. Does that mean that therefore every person's gonna be a big celebrity and a big uh, a big personality. I will say that most presidential elections, not all, do offer a self-correction to the previous presidencies. That's usually an overreaction. You go from super reserved to super outspoken, super liberal to super conservative. So could there be a, a sort of a, a, a change where we're looking for more of a technocrat? Like maybe, I don't, I'm not terribly optimistic that that's actually what the country is looking for right now, but I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. You asked a little, a little earlier what we worry about, and you, you know, you've, we're spending a lot of time talking about Trump, and and all that I find very interesting. But I do agree with you when you say a lot of this started many, many years ago and decades ago. And when I stand back and I look at how the United States has solidified power and grown over the last forty or fifty years, it's been mainly through war, and and very unsuccessfully, really, starting from Vietnam up to and including Syria. And if you look at other countries that are being far more strategic, China, for example, is really growing through infrastructure and using infrastructure to grow the country and being incredibly strategic. That's what I worry about. I, f I worry about far more about that, about having a strategy to take us into the next 40 or 50 years than I do about four years of Trump or even eight years of Trump. Uh, amen. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I was thinking about this this week, and not to dog on the New York Times, but the New York Times put out an announcement this week that they've, they have like 15 people covering the 2018 elections. 15 people cover the 2018, like, no, they're important, but like, they probably have, I know for a fact, they have zero assigned specifically to cover 5G. 
they probably have one or two people covering uh, China 2025. Like things that are, if you think that the world has changed a lot in the last five to 10 years, you wait until we have 5G. You wait until you have the ability to have instant connectivity at hundreds to thousands of the speed that we have today. That's gonna to empower all the stuff that we thought was space age before that's gonna be usable soon. What happened in the Midwest in terms of the, the manufacturing crisis is gonna unfold in industry after industry, not over 10 or 20 years, it's gonna happen overnight. Just like the retail industry was wiped out by Amazon, Every there's not an industry. It's it's a great time to be an entrepreneur because everybody's vulnerable. Everything is changeable. Uh, one of the thought experiments I always encourage people to do is just walk a block here when you get out and look into every single store and ask yourself, like, could a robot be doing that better than that human right now? Should a robot be doing that job better than a human right now? The answer in almost every case is, of course, yes. Well, if you're a CEO of a publicly traded company, you have a fiduciary responsibility to drive shareholder value, meaning you're going to adapt all of those technologies. You're going to. You're going to be under too much competitive pressure not to. So there are like huge, huge things at stake that I think uh, go way overwhelmed by Trump. And I don't know how to fix that. We cover it, but I can tell you the traffic each and every day, they're not reading about 5G. <laughs> they're reading about Trump. And uh, forget going out on the street. Uh, look around in your own workplace, the same sobering finding. Yes, sir. I have a two-part question. Number one, I'm curious why you guys think that this lack of vocal opposition from leaders within the Republican Party. It seems to me that party over country is, is the new uh, realm in this country, that nobody wants to speak up, whether it's Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. You could go down the line. Second of all, do you think it's the responsibility of ex-presidents to speak up and be heard when what's going on is happening in this country right now? I think they should be heard. Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, so Republicans... I always say that everyone's like, oh, like Trump's going to be removed from office. He's not going to be removed from office. He's not. I, unless there's like a radical change in the next Congress. Well, how do you know that? All that's happened over the last two years, unless you're retiring and you're only, it's only a couple of members, or you're dying like John McCain, you're not saying a negative thing about him publicly. Why? Because Trump's numbers today with Republicans are stronger than they were when he was elected. He's had over 80% uh, favorabilities. So Republicans are not going to turn on him. To be removed from office, you need to be impeached by the House of Representatives, and you need to be removed from the Senate, or by the Senate, with a super majority. It ain't happening, because Republicans are with him. Whether they, they hate him, most of them don't like him at all, but they, are, they certainly don't have that political uh, courage. In terms of ex-presidents, I, I think people have to make up their own minds. I, I, I personally found the way George Bush left the White House to be a very admirable way of handling things, to do it quietly, to do it respectfully, to let the next president take over and not step on their uh, toes. Today, I'd say we're in sort of uncharted territory, and I think both Obama and Bush are to this day wrestling with how uh, vocal they should be about it. But I, I, to me, like only they can make uh, that decision. They should do whatever the hell they want to do. Um, right back there oh. too. No, no, you, you, okay. you, you um, One thing that bothers me, and I just would love to hear what you guys think about this, is people always say MSNBC and Fox News. And I just feel like there needs to be some type of in-between, because regardless of your beliefs, even if you don't want to watch Rachel Maddow or Lawrence O'Donnell, there are things that seem like a little bit conspiratorial that are happening on Fox News. And I just think there needs to be a difference between comparing those two. I have an answer for you. 
It's axios.com, A-X-I-O-S.com. But seriously, one of the most popular features that we have, we do something called Facts Matter. And it looks at realities. And there's so many obvious, in the past, self-evident realities that uh, now either people don't believe or they don't come to grips with or they want to know the other side. So facts matter. And again, it's the opportunity for people who want to do smart, serious, trustworthy news because you're right. Like People are hungry for it, and it's missing in the places you were talking about. Thank you so much for speaking tonight. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the revenue model behind Axios and what you've learned as far as consumer behaviors around paying for professional journalism and how you see yourselves as distingu distinguishing yourselves from the challenges other media outlets face. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky in that we spent 10 years uh, at Politico, like six years uh, screwing everything up, and then the next four years are getting most of it right. We've had a lot of time to sort of figure out how do you engineer a media company that can actually make money, and we are a for-profit company, uh, that, uh, that is sustainable, durable, and, and, and can be bigger uh, over time. Our model right now is solely advertising. It's, it's in the stream, in the newsletters. Uh, it basically looks a lot like our regular content, kind of looks like it would on Facebook, sort of modeled. We basically looked at the data, how are people consuming information, they're consuming it in small nuggets. How could we get value uh, for the advertiser? Well, make them deliver it in small nuggets. Lo and behold, they get better results with us than they get from other people because we put that data uh, to work. What, what we've learned about consumer behavior is uh, one, uh, m most people, the vast majority of people, consume the vast majority of their content in very small nuggets. It's the reason we engineered the site the way we did. You could fight it. You could say, I wish people read 2,000 words. You don't. I'm sorry. Like I, I can just call bullshit on everyone who tells me like their reading habits because I've studied this stuff for 10 years. Right? I see what people read and don't read. The, the truth is, though, us in the industry, I think we did you a disservice. I think for so long, we wrote for ourselves. We wrote 1,200 words because that's what a serious journalist does. When sometimes it only takes 200 words. Or sometimes you shouldn't have written the stupid story to begin with. There's nothing new. There's nothing interesting. You did it out of obligation to your beat. And so what we do is we say reader first. Every single thing we do is this in the best service of the reader. Just like Amazon would think is this in the best service of the person buying something on Amazon.com. Uh, like uh, and that just it ends up radically changing the culture of your company. And so we've, we had a great first year. We're having a great uh, second year. Like, who the hell knows uh, what the out years will be? But uh, we're obviously very optimistic about it. The media is a tough business. I, when we raised money we, and we raised venture capital to start the company, our pitch was probably the worst uh, sell uh, in the beginning, which is if you're looking to get the highest possible multiple return on your money, don't invest in us. Matter of fact, don't invest in media. Like, go into healthcare or energy or technology. There are sectors that, in terms of your ROI, you can do a lot better. If you want to have a hell of a lot of fun, if you want to make, uh, still hopefully make a good return on your investment and make a big difference, media is a great play. And so we've got investors who obviously care about uh, the calling of the company. And, like it's, and, you know, again, because we had done it before, I think we've engineered it with the right hires to be able to do what we need uh, to be able to do. But all of this disruption in our industry, it's going to hit 
get it's going to affect you. What hit newspapers? Just wait to what's happening to cable TV and traditional TV providers. Like five, ten years from now, it's not going to be the big uh, companies we're talking about. It's going to be your Netflixes and your Hulus and things you can't even uh, pronounce uh, or, or can't even imagine today that are going to replace it. There's just it's too easy. Your cost of entry, getting in as a new company in almost every sector, it's just easier to be new. I would never take over someone else's mess. Sir, I'm told you the last word. I know I'm not Sarah, and this is not the White House, but I have a two-part question. <laughs> um, and the first you can answer easily. Why was Hillary so admired when she was Secretary of State and became so poisonous when she ran for office? She was one of the most admired people in the world at that yep. point in time. And the second part is you described, I think, Obama perfectly, the way he left his party. Hillary is not a leader today of the party. I don't think Schumer or Pelosi are leaders. I, I was told that the next leader will emerge after 2018 election, but what are your opinions of that? I'll take the second half. The Democrats. We'll make Evan take the other half. <laughs> uh, Democrats 2020, I can tell you the top Democrats that we talk to are very pessimistic, very, because they're going to have what they should have, which is a very open primary. Lots of people are going to run and should. What most Democrats that I talk to are convinced that they need a new face or a new generation. But can those people raise the money that you need to raise? Like That's a real problem. And uh, so uh, we did an event, Axios did an event with the mayor of LA, Eric Garcetti, and with the mayor for two more days of New Orleans, Mitchell Andrew. And it was just so refreshing because they just talked a different language than Washington uh, Democrats do. But the, the reason Democrats are so pessimistic is that the money, the attention, the incentives are all further left than where the country is. And so like, who would actually be a good match with Trump? Who actually would be good running against Trump? It's not and Elizabeth Warren, who's going to be in his face, it's going to be somebody like uh, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, who can needle him, get under his skin a little bit, make fun of him a little bit. I'm trying to think of the best way to answer your first, uh, the first part of the question, which is on the Clintons. I, I think, listen, when she was Secretary of State, she was largely like out of mind, right? You're there, you hear about her occasionally, and when you do see her, it's on the world stage and it's interacting with world leaders. There, there's something comforting about her, her expertise uh, when she was at state. Once uh, she runs, you have to see her every day. And I think for a lot of people, she just grates on you. There's just something about her. She's been into public life for so long. If you hated her, you hated her profoundly. And there weren't that many people who loved her profoundly, right? There was a lot of Democrats who had sort of lukewarm feelings. Oh, I guess so. She's better than uh, Trump. But there just wasn't that, that affection. And like... I mean, I'm somewhat sympathetic to her. Like, if you were like... Imagine wanting to be president since you were in the womb. And then being like married to Bill Clinton and going through all that stuff, like the personal stuff, the political stuff, and still wanting it so badly, and then putting yourself out there once and, and getting rejected, then putting yourself out there again, and everyone's telling you, you gotta be likable, you gotta be likable, and deep down, you know what? I'm just not that likable. Not in a public setting, and she could never overcome that, and I think she was just tortured by it. So, she was, yeah. So uh, we're yeah. getting the hook. I'd like to continue. 
I'd like to continue this conversation. One way that we can continue it is in Axios AM, the best breakfast table in the world. So there's a super easy way to get Axios in your inbox. Sign up .axios.com. Sign up .axios.com. Thank, thank, thank the 90 Second Street Y and thank all of you. Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2018 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.